morning. If you have your Bible, please open it up to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, very familiar passage this time of year. We are going to be in verse 8. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly, there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to the people he favors. Well, here we are, the last Sunday of 2020. Can I get an amen? This time next week, we're meeting together. 2020, be out of here. But I'm talking today about peace on earth. 2020 kind of seems to be the antithesis to peace on earth, doesn't it? I mean, let's just kind of go back and think through some of the things that happened in just this year. January 1st sort of started out with a bang when the American embassy in Iraq came under siege by an Iranian-backed militant group. They burned part of the compound of the embassy there. A few days later, the president of the United States was impeached. And no matter what your thoughts on that, everybody left, right, and center seems to agree that episode was a bad thing for the country. And of course, we have COVID-19. That's why we're all wearing the masks. More than 20 million people around the world have contracted the virus. And it's resulted in at least 750,000 deaths around the globe. Because of that, there was a stock market crash, and on March 16th, the Dow dropped almost 3,000 points and was the largest single-day drop in history. In a four-day period, it plunged 6,400 points, which was about 26%. There were Australian brush fires that are linked to an estimated 445 deaths, 4,000 hospitalizations, and the deaths of more than 500 million animals. California wildfires destroyed millions of acres of land and displaced hundreds of thousands of people. There was an explosion in Beirut that originated from the port where they were storing over 2,700 tons of highly explosive ammonium nitrate. And if you've not seen the video, the, the explosion is just significant. Uh, over 157, uh, 157 people were killed, 6,000 injured, hundreds of thousands were displaced. There were Hundreds of billions of locusts that swarmed through parts of East Africa and South Asia in the worst infestation in a quarter of a century, threatening the food supply of tens of millions. And they said the swarms of these locusts were the size of entire cities. The Food and Agricultural Organization said that the locusts could affect the food security of 25 million people. Then there were the murder hornets. My goodness, I've never been so scared in my life of seeing anything else. It just, it's a two-inch hornet. It's, it's the uh, wicked-looking thing. And they had previously been over in Asia, so in Japan specifically, and, and grew up to two inches long. And they attack honeybee hives. They actually just go ahead and 
bite the heads off of all the bees. So if if you're keeping bees and you show up, all of your bees have been decapitated. There they are. About 30 to 50 people in Japan die every year from being stung by them. They have very poisonous venom. Kobe Bryant, his daughter, Gianna, and seven others were killed in a helicopter crash. We lost Alex Trebek, many others throughout the course of the year. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg died just weeks before the presidential election that touched off a firestorm politically over whether or not the president should appoint a justice in an election year and so close to an election. We also had a presidential election. Enough said there. The Chinese persecution of Christians, the Christian Post released just in the past 10 days or so, has significantly increased. Pastors are having to go underground. In China, every citizen has a card with a microchip in it where they can track you. You can't buy a bus ticket or a train ticket. You can't rent an apartment. You can't get a job without that card. And the pastors are are destroying their cards. They are getting rid of their cell phones in an effort not to be slaughtered. Just this past week, there was a rocket attack near the American embassy in Iraq, thought to be the work of Iran and the largest attack in that embassy, by, on that embassy in a decade. And just two days ago on Christmas morning at about 6 a.m. in my home state of Tennessee in downtown Nashville, there was a bomb that was set off that was an RV that had been filled with explosives. And these are just some of the things that happened this year. And, and we come to a place like Luke 2, and we hear the angels promise peace on earth. And we just want to say, well, where is it? I mean, it's been 2,000 years. And in the previous 2,000 years, we have had war and genocide and famine and pestilence and holocaust. Where is it? And when we come to this passage, we too, like the Christmas hymn, very may well say, and in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. But I hope that by the time we come to the end of this passage, that you will see that that was not a hollow promise. So let's first look at the background of our text in Luke 2. Mary and Joseph were forced to travel the 90 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. It was roughly a five-day journey, and Mary was, the, the King James Version doesn't put this very delicately. It says that she was great with child. Now, I live with a pregnant woman, and let me tell you something I am not about to say. Why, Mrs. Lloyd, aren't you looking very great with child this morning? No, no, no. I have a, I'm going on a bit of a car ride to see some family this afternoon. I'd like there to be a little bit of peace on earth in the van as we're going down. So I like how the CSB renders it here much more delicately. She was pregnant. Very good. And it's possible that Joseph took Mary with him so that he could get her out of the situation that was fraught with gossip in Nazareth. So Jesus is even ridiculed as he is an adult by some of the religious leaders because they said his birth was illegitimate because they didn't believe Mary's story. So that's possible. That's one of the reasons why Joseph may have taken her with him. Of course, they were, they were espoused to get married. Makes sense as well. And we don't know how far along she was at this point. She had to be at least three months pregnant because she went to visit Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. She stayed there for three months. So she's at least three months pregnant when they begin this journey. I also don't know how long they stayed in Bethlehem since this is where Joseph is from. It's possible he had family there. And, and so let me throw a little bit of a curveball here at you. So 
in the King James, again, most of us, or at least if you're maybe over 30, you probably hear this passage in the King James in some ways. So some of the words sort of stick in your mind that way. There was no room for them in the inn. Now, the CSB translates it another way that's, that's equally right. There was no guest room available for them. So now, now guest room is a little bit different than an inn. So you might have a guest room in your house. I have a guest room in, in my house. And so it's a little bit different there. It's actually the same word in Luke twenty two eleven, where it says, tell the owner of the house, the teacher asks you, where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover with my disciples? And so it's possible that since this census happened, different cities are going to be flooded with an influx of people who are having to go there to register. So maybe not necessarily a hotel that was not available for Joseph and Mary, but maybe just a family member. The guest rooms are full, but you can maybe stay here in our living room. And so some have suggested that in agricultural societies that they will actually bring in many of their animals into the house in the main living area so that it protects them from the cold, it can protect them from predators. In the middle of the night, it would make sense why there might be a manger there. And this is actually a common practice still in many countries today. And since Mary and Joseph were both the sons of David, it's kind of unlikely that they didn't have family in Bethlehem somewhere. So it's possible that this innkeeper that everybody you know, speaks poorly of this time of year, that he, you know, he's just a nice old guy, just didn't have a room, but he didn't, he didn't turn Messiah away perhaps. You know, so let's, let's take it easy on the innkeeper, shall we? So now the shepherds, these were outcasts. They, they were ceremonially unclean because of numerous things they had to do throughout the time of taking care of sheep. They couldn't go into the sanctuary on a, on a typical day because of being unclean. And they probably stunk. I mean, sheep really stink. They smell awful. And, and so they probably stunk as well. But there's some really important people who were shepherds. David was a shepherd. Moses, Abraham, Jesus referred to himself as a shepherd. And David actually watched flocks in the fields around this area. And some scholars even believe it could have been in this same field. Can't be dogmatic about that, but think that it's, that's possible. And many of the sheep in this area, they, they weren't raised for food or for, or for their wool. They were actually raised to be sacrificial animals. And isn't it interesting that the announcement of the Lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world was also given in front of these sheep who were born for slaughter. In verse 9, it says that the angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Now, this was probably Gabriel. Don't know for sure, but he's, he's definitely the most likely candidate. He's the one that appeared to Mary. He's the one that appeared to Zacharias. And he the word here that indicated that it says he came and stood near them. You know, a lot of times when we, when we think of it or see it in movies or see it in pictures, the angels are sort of way off, far in the sky, but it says he came and he stood near them. And there hadn't been reports of angels appearing to anyone for hundreds of years. And, and typically they, they appear to people who would be considered, you know, important. Not the outcast of the outcast not the shepherds. The glory of the Lord appeared to them. And, and the glory of the Lord typically describes the burning light that emanates from God himself. It's, it's described in the Bible as a cloud of lightning or as a consuming fire. 
And the shepherds would have never had the occasion to see their world lit up at night. They would have had maybe bonfires. They might have had torches, but they they couldn't go to a football game or a Cardinals game at 9 o'clock at night and just see the world sort of lit up in the middle of the night. And so it was unusual that this explosion of light happens so suddenly. And, and, you know, angels were not cute little decorative babies sitting on clouds with, with little bitty wings, right? So, and, and I almost have to wonder if the angels might even get perturbed at that sort of picture of themselves. You know, I mean, I had somebody come and tell me one time, so-and-so said, you remind them of this actor in this show. And I, and I went and looked him up and I was like, that is just, that is not a compliment at all, at all. And was very disappointed about that. And, you know, I kind of almost wonder if the angels do that. And it's just like, I mean, come on, that? Oh, come on. I mean, they have, they have their own personalities, right? I mean, you, so when, when Gabriel appeared to Zacharias and tells him his wife's going to have a baby, and Zacharias is like, listen, man, my wife's pretty old. She, she's not about to have a kid. And, and Gabriel gets mad. He says, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. Stop talking, human. And, you know, and, and for eight months, you won't be talking. And... So maybe they're maybe a little miffed at the little babies with wings or something, knowing that they're, they're a little bit better than that. They were intimidatingly fierce warriors of light that struck overwhelming fear on the hearts of everyone that saw them. We don't really know what they look like, but the reaction from everybody in the Bible is the exact same when they see an appearance of an angel, and it is immense and devastating terror. And the angel says, don't be afraid. Like, yeah, sure. I mean, you're wearing a flaming sword on your hip. I mean, and, and I mean, and so there's this movie, The Nativity. Not a bad movie, but parts of it just kind of really irritate me, maybe a little more than it ought to. But I've always said if there was any part, any part of the Bible that I could have seen in person, it would be this story. And they, they just absolutely blow it. When, so when the angel appears to Mary, when the angel appears to the shepherds, it's a, it's a short guy with tan skin and curly hair wearing a robe that's just slightly brighter than the average white robe. And, and, I'm just, and he says to the shepherds, don't be afraid. And I half expect him to say, well, we're not. And, and I mean, just who's going to be afraid of that guy? He weighs 118 pounds. Mary could beat him up. You know, and so, so that's just not the way it would have been. But he brought to them good news of great joy. J.C. Ryle said the spiritual darkness which had covered the earth for 4,000 years was about to be rolled away. The way to pardon and peace with God was about to be thrown open to all mankind. The head of Satan was about to be bruised. Liberty was about to be proclaimed to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. The mighty truth was about to be proclaimed that God could be just and yet for Christ's sake justify the ungodly. Salvation was no longer to be seen through types and figures, but openly and face to face. The knowledge of God was no longer to be confined to the Jews, but, to, but offered to the whole Gentile world. The days of heathenism were numbered. The first stone of God's kingdom was about to be set up. If this was not good tidings, there were never tidings that deserved the name. So what were these good tidings? What was this good news of great joy? Well, it is this. It is that a Savior was born for you. Now, notice he doesn't say a Savior was born for us. 
See, the angels don't stand in need of salvation, but they rejoice with mankind that God has offered to them a savior and glory in a God who is merciful and kind and just. And in verse 12, he says, this will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. Now, the angel told them this because they, they were going to have to go look. He didn't say, okay, you take a ride at this street and you go down just a little bit and Google tells them, okay, you've arrived. No, they, they were going to have to go look and he tells them this sign so they know what it is when they see it. And, you know, they would have gone looking for, at palaces. They would have gone and looked where the kings were hanging out, the son of David, the Messiah. They wouldn't have looked in a manger unless they've been told to do so. In fact, the wise men do the same thing. Matthew 1 and 2, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. So they're, they're in Jerusalem and they kind of anticipate, you know, they knew and traveled from afar that this king was born. They expect that everybody there is going to be in an uproar about this king, this Messiah, this one. And they have to ask around town. And nobody knows. So they go to King Herod, which makes sense. If this great king had been born, that he would know. This one that Israel had waited hundreds of thousands of years for to be the greatest king the world had ever seen was born without acclaim or wide renown. And then suddenly there was with the angels a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to the people that he favors. And in verse 15, it says, when the angels had left them and returned to heaven. Now in verse nine, it's interesting as I already said, it says that when the angel appeared, he appeared suddenly and right before them. But when it talks about the angels returning to heaven, it's actually interesting in the original, it, it indicates that instead of disappearing at once in the same way that they came, they actually disappeared one at a time and slowly, as if they weren't in a hurry to leave. And then they promised peace on earth. So I would like us to look at, for the rest of our time, these words, peace on earth. And I'd like us to think of three different ways that there is going to be peace on earth. The first one has to do with racial reconciliation. On May 25th, a group of white police officers arrested a black man named George Floyd in Minneapolis. As Floyd struggled with them, he was taken to the ground, and Officer Derek Chauvin placed his knee between Floyd's neck and head. And this lasted for a number of minutes until Floyd eventually died. This touched off a firestorm of protests and rioting in the United States that lasted for many months. Many citizens who were marching were deeply concerned about racial inequality. But others use these demonstrations as an opportunity to steal and destroy property and wreak havoc in American cities. 77-year-old police officer David Dorn was shot and killed by looters at a pawn shop here in St. Louis. And as he lay dying in a pool of his own blood, his death was live streamed over Facebook. His own grandson was watching his grandfather die live but did not know it at the time that it was his own grandfather. We also are not too far removed to where the word Ferguson does not conjure up the same memories. Race relations are at their worst point in decades in this country, and it doesn't appear that they're going to get better anytime soon. 
and sweeping in at the same time is a new philosophy, or relatively new, called critical race theory. And I'm just going to read you a quote from two authors describing what critical race theory is. Modern critical theory views reality through the lens of power. Each individual is seen either as oppressed or as an oppressor, depending on their race, class, gender, sexuality, and a number of other categories. Oppressed groups are subjugated not by physical force or even overt discrimination, but through the exercise of power, the ability of dominant groups to impose their norms, values, and expectations on society as a whole, relegating other groups to subordinate positions. So, for example, if you have a white man and a black man standing next to each other, the white man would be seen as the oppressor because of numerous things that white people have done throughout history. And so the black man, through his own personal learned experience, has a greater understanding and knowledge of the truth. And so when discussing these things, you should take the black man's point of view. But if you have a black man and a black woman, the black woman belongs to a greater category of oppressed groups because black, but also a woman. Women have been oppressed throughout history as well. But you continue to go down the rabbit hole here, and you've got a black woman and a black gay woman. So this one belongs to more groups than the previous one. And so you continue to go down, and the more oppressed you are, the more your opinion matters, and the more your truth should take precedent over those who have come in and have oppressed you. This means that morality is only a matter of your circumstances. It is not something objective like commands given from a higher power. And not only is it anti-biblical because it's, it's saying that these commands are not given from the higher power. It doesn't have to be even, even God. Here in America, I'll get to that in just a second. But they're saying it's my own learned experience. It's my truth. So, for example, here in the United States, let's just not think, not even think in biblical terms here, but in the United States, we believe that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. So the Declaration of Independence says we're all created equal. We should have a level playing field. Number one, it's against that. Secondly, it says that we get that equality from our creator. And again, the Declaration of Independence doesn't specify Yahweh, the God of the Bible. It, it doesn't specify Allah or whoever it might be, but that a higher created a higher being created us and endowed us with certain inalienable rights. So not only is it anti-biblical, it's also un-American. But you have experienced it whether or not you knew it went by the name critical race theory. And it is a, an evil philosophy that you need to run away from. Even trying to argue with objective facts or reason is dismissed as a more powerful group simply seeking to retain power. Christians can neither give themselves to racism or critical race theory. This system says that the most important thing about you is how oppressed you are and your ability to liberate yourself. But Christianity says that the most important thing about you is what you believe about Jesus and that he and he alone has the power to liberate you from sin and death and hell. Russell Moore said, when those who the world thinks should hate each other, love each other instead, the church is testifying that our identity is in Jesus Christ. See, the angel did not say that these tidings were for the Jews only. It says that it was for all the people, red and yellow, black and white. All are precious in his sight. God is making a bride for Christ from people of every tongue and tribe and people and nation. Galatians 3.28 says, There is now no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since you are all one 
in Christ Jesus. The second way that we can have peace is that this announcement of the birth of Christ can give us peace with God. If there is anyone in the universe that you want to have peace with, it is God. The Bible presents God as the most fearsome warrior that exists. In Exodus 14, God was the one who hurled Pharaoh and his army into the sea and destroyed them. In 2 Kings 19, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. Psalm 7 verse 12 says, if anyone does not repent, God will sharpen his sword. He has strung his bow and made it ready. He has prepared his deadly weapons. He tips his arrows with fire. And now while God is long-suffering and will accept any repentant sinner, the Bible pictures God as awaiting the moment when judgment and justice will fall. The shepherds go from great fear to great joy in a matter of moments because they accepted this message. But if you do not accept the message that comes with the birth of this baby and the kingdom of God being ushered in, there will be no great joy for you. There will only be great fear and terror forever. If you do not repent and turn to Christ, God is sharpening his sword and he will cut you down. Romans 8.31 says, what then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? But Charles Spurgeon points out that the reverse is also true. If God is against you, Who can be for you? Who can be for you? But there is peace on earth to people that God favors. Who are those people with whom God is pleased, with whom God favors? It's those who believe in his son, because God is pleased in his son. So all of those who are joined to him by faith, God is pleased in them. So that you could enjoy peace, Jesus endured absolute chaos. The birth of this baby is a declaration of war on the powers of darkness that presently rule this world. Satan's rule of tyranny is going to end with his head being crushed. And my favorite line of any song is God and sinners reconciled. Romans 5, 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. The man Christ Jesus is the prince of peace. You want to know peace? You need to know Jesus. And if you have never accepted Christ, if you have never repented of your sin and turned to Jesus Christ and believed in his life, his death, his resurrection, I want to invite you to do that now, today. Because there is no great joy that doesn't await you, but there is great joy. You can have peace with God right now. It's not waiting until you get to heaven. You in your heart and in your soul, you can have peace with God right now. And I want you to go with me. I'm going. And I want you there too. I don't, even you, if you're watching online, I, I want you to go. I don't know you, but we have eternity to get to know each other. And I want you to be there. Let's go. Trust Christ today. Do it. Thirdly, and finally, there will be peace with God because there is going to be peace on earth one day. God is going to end our exile. 
on this world. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. You see, during the time of Jesus' birth, Israel was under the domination and rule of the Roman Empire. They were cruel. They ruled with an iron fist. They taxed with extravagance. And they would, they would murder people by execution, by crucifying them in public places, what would be equivalent to the malls or very busy intersections to show that this is what happens when you go against us. So they were in exile in their own land. In the Christian worldview, the Bible presents us believers as exile on this earth. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those chosen, living as exiles dispersed abroad. You see, Christ isn't ruling on this world the way that he will be. We are made for a kingdom ruled by King Jesus, one that will overcome the powers that are raging in the world today, the ones that are preventing there from being peace on earth. This is going to come There is going to come a day where we will live upon the earth as it was meant to be. But now we wait. So just as we were kind of thinking 2020 had kind of done all of its things, we we lost our family cat this week. Now, now listen, I know some of you have lost uncles and aunts and parents and grandparents. So I'm I'm in no way at all comparing this to that. But for, for our family, This was a very real, very legitimate, sad thing that happened in our family this past week. And Erica had bought Oscar before she even met me. So he'd been around a while. All of our kids lived in the house with him. So we go and and we we bury him. And it's the first pet or or our children never really had a family member that they knew really well that, that had passed away. So this is really sort of the first death of anything that they were close to that they they'd had. And and our four year old Nehemiah was having an especially hard time with it. So we go and we, we bury Oscar, and we, as we're kind of dispersing and going back into the house, he, he's crying so hard that I have to just pick him up and, and carry him to the, to the front porch. And I sat him down, and he's just crying, and he's crying, and he's crying. It's, the, it's literally, for him, the saddest day of his life. And I just looked at him and said, buddy, Jesus didn't just die so that we can be free of our sin, so that we don't have to face hell and so that we get to go to heaven. Jesus also died so that he can reverse the curse that's on this world. This world is not the way that God created it. And one day Jesus is going to come back and set up his kingdom and he's going to create for us a world where our pets don't die and where there's no death anymore. And he looked at me crying as hard as he could and he said, Daddy, I wish he would do it right now. And friends, let me tell you, I felt that in my soul. Not just because I was empathizing with my son, but because that's exactly how I feel. I wish he would do it right now. Why won't he do it right now? Boy, the waiting's hard, isn't it? The waiting is hard. But it's designed to grow faith in us and dependence on God and nothing else. Even the saints in heaven who had been martyred are crying out day and night, How long, O Lord? until you avenge us. What are you waiting for? We groan within ourselves. Creation itself groans under the weight of this curse that has been inflicted upon it. 
When Jesus would perform a miracle in the New Testament, he did so, of course, out of compassion. He would, he would heal the sick. He would cast out demons. He would feed the hungry. He did it out of compassion. But that was not the main reason that he did it. These miracles were not ends in themselves. They had a point. Matthew 4.17 says, From then on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. So the miracles are to point towards what is coming, what Jesus is inviting us to, what he's saying he's going to do. This is what it's like in my kingdom. So you like this, you're really going to like that. Matthew 4.23. Now Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Healing, feeding, miracle, it's the kingdom of God. This is what it's like there. Jesus came to roll it back. So let's think about Lazarus for a second. So you remember Lazarus, Jesus' friend, Mary and Martha, his sisters. Lazarus dies. Jesus gets the news that Lazarus was sick, very sick in John eleven four. When Jesus heard it, he said, this sickness will not end in death, but it's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Listen to this. Now, Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So, underline that word, put a box around it, put a star there, highlight it, whatever it is you do in your Bible, put a word around it. Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So, when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place that he was. How unloving that seems to us, does it not? Does that not seem unloving to us? If that's all we know of the story, this man that can heal sick people stays in place because he loves them. Friends, if you are a Christian and if you are suffering right now, I want you to know that it's because God loves you. I don't know what it is. Maybe you've lost your job. Maybe you've lost someone close to you. Maybe it's just been more difficult for you than the average person but you're suffering because God loves you. And that's not what the world's going to say. The world's going to say, if God loves you, then you should be happy, you should be healthy, you should have a good job, you should have a good family. That's what it's like if God loves you. But that's not what it says. Jesus is growing in you and in me, faith through perseverance. And he is holding on to us. And that perseverance, that holding on to us by Christ is what gives us entry into the future kingdom where there will be peace on earth. And so Martha goes to Jesus and, and she is frustrated. She, she is angry. And in eleven twenty four of John, it says, Martha said to him, I know that Lazarus will rise in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Jesus doesn't say, hey, 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 hold on. It's okay. It's okay. I'm going to go raise your brother from the dead right now. He doesn't say that. He could. He's about to, but that's not what he says. He makes her wait because he loved her. Because what he was going to show to her later 
was better for her. Jesus tells her, I'm the resurrection and the life, Martha. The resurrection is not an event. It is a person. It is me. John 1, 4, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. John 10, 10, I have come that they may have life and have it in abundance. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. And so when they get to the tomb, Jesus still makes her wait, and he doesn't tell her plainly what he's about to do, that he's about to raise her brother from the dead. And and just look at Martha here. I love how Martha reacts here, not because it's the perfect reaction, but because it's how I react in these same situations. She is is angry. She is frustrated, but she has belief. She she knows Jesus is the Messiah. She knows he can do great wonders. She knows God's going to give him everything that he asked for, but he didn't come. He didn't come. And there's doubt, but there's belief. There's knowledge. She knows the Bible. She knows about the resurrection. She knows Jesus is the Messiah. She knows all this. She's frustrated. You weren't here, Jesus. This doesn't make sense, Jesus. This doesn't feel like love, Jesus. And this is how Jesus operates. This is how Jesus operates. So what is it for you? What is that thing that you are waiting on? It's not because you're out of God's will. It's not because you've done something wrong. It's because God loves you. You can have peace in your heart with Christ, but he never promises that he will, you'll have peace on this earth during this life. In fact, he promises the opposite. Jesus says in John 16, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I've conquered the world. And so Jesus gets there. He continues in this conversation with Martha. She doesn't understand. She doesn't understand. She doesn't get it. She's doubting. She's believing all the things. And then he says to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? It's not about things going your way. It's not about things happening on your schedule. It's about you believing, persevering, and believing without having all the answers. Believing, trusting the hand of God. Believing when it hurts. Believing that the judge of all the earth will do what is right. That is how you have peace with God and enter into his kingdom that was created for you, where you will forever and ever and ever and ever have peace on earth. It's not this earth. It's not this earth. It's the next one. It's the new one that's coming. Hebrews 13 says, for we do not have an enduring city here. We seek the one that is to come. This announcement of peace on earth is what this baby boy is bringing to us. He came to end our enslavement to sin and lead us out of our exile on this earth to a city whose builder is God. We may not see it fully now, but we see it through the eyes of faith and look toward it with joy, knowing that it is our promised possession.
106 years ago this past Christmas Day. The world was engaged in, at the time, what was the bloodiest war in history. It was World War I. And all across the Eastern Front, soldiers on both sides were dug into their foxholes on Christmas Eve night, going into Christmas morning. And they were sitting there. The air was cold. The ground was hard. They missed home. They were thinking about mom and dad. They were thinking about their wives. They were thinking about their children that they couldn't be with. And suddenly, the British troops began to hear a familiar tune sung in an unfamiliar language. Stille Nacht, heilige Nacht, alles schlaft, einsam wacht, nur das trauter Hokale Gepard, Holdach Nabe im Lagergen Hand. Schlaf in And then the British soldiers began to sing back in their own language, Silent Night, Holy Night. And they began to sing Christmas carols back and forth. And as this progressed throughout the morning, as Christmas was beginning to dawn, they began to shout across no man's land, this area with barbed wire and dead bodies and blood and bullets and smoke. And they said, if I lay down my weapon, will you meet me in no man's land? And so one by one by one, they all came out. Upwards of 100,000 soldiers came out of the foxholes that Christmas day and they shook hands and they gave each other gifts. They tore buttons off their jackets to give to one another to remember the day. They gave each other haircuts. They played soccer. And we remember that story, the Christmas truce as it's known, because in it, we hear the whisper of what it's going to be like on that final day when God sends Jesus back to set up his kingdom on this earth and do away with death and war and sin forever. It will be peace on earth. It will be joy to the world. Let heaven and nature see Jesus Christ is king. Over the hills and everywhere that Jesus Christ is born. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for sending him. We thank you that one day, one day soon, he will bring us peace on earth. God, give us the faith that we need until that day. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.